Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 5. First John chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 13 through 15 this morning, but I will read all the way to verse 21 to set the context. First John 5, we'll begin reading at verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for the assurances that you give to us in this present fallen world. We are thankful for the eternal life that we partake in in part now and will partake in full when Christ comes again. And even though we do not see you, we know that we love you. Even though we do not see you, we are thankful that you hear us. And so help us to cling to your word by faith. Help us to trust in your word by faith. And we long for the day when our faith shall be sight, when we shall see Christ as he is. But as we are making our way, as we walk this world, as we struggle and slog along in this present age, we pray that we would know. We pray that we would know that we have eternal life and we pray that we would ask. We pray that we would be a people who has confidence before you in prayer, that we would be a people who praise your promises back to you. And as we pray according to your will, help us to have the faith and assurance that what we pray you have heard and you will answer. So give us that aid, we pray. Give us that assurance, we pray. We pray that you teach us how to pray, teach us how to trust, and teach us to know you. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, show them that they are under your wrath. Show them that they do not have eternal life, but are under and uh, uh, face the threat of eternal death. And we pray that you would save their souls, by, that you'd help them and enable them to look to Christ by faith, that you would make them willing in the day of your power. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. Give us aid from on high. Give us illumination by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, after talking with other pastors and after meeting with the people of God for these last six years, you begin to recognize patterns that the people of God seem to struggle with. Sometimes one certain struggle can arise in a church more than in, in one place than in another church. Now, God's people sometimes need a firm but gentle exhortation, while others need an encouraging word. And one thing I know that quite a few people struggle with is the idea of assurance. 
Am I saved? Am I Christ's? Have I believed? People can struggle with sin. People can struggle with remaining corruption. And as we struggle, those doubts begin to creep in. I'm not as prayerful as I should be. I think thoughts that I shouldn't. And those people need a word of encouragement. Those people need a reminder and an assurance of where salvation lies, and that lies in Christ Jesus. They need to know that they have eternal life. And remember, this is the main purpose of John as he writes this book. And we finally come to the main thesis in the book. As John drives in his sermon to the main point, it is 5.13. I write to you that you know that you have eternal life. Because remember, there are these other men who came in, these heretics, these pre-Gnostics, who put that assurance uh, in jeopardy, who brought a threat to that assurance because of what they said concerning Jesus Christ, because of what they said concerning where eternal life is. They said it was based on their experiences, and they denied that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God. And if you deny that very thing, then you cannot have eternal life because life is in the Son. Life is in Jesus Christ. Life is in the one who is the Son of God. And if you do not believe on who he is, you cannot have eternal life. And throughout the letter, John has given us these tests, how we know that we're children of God, how do we know that we walk in the light, and certainly commandments in the life we live can be an evidence. But the main thing is, is Jesus Christ. He writes us and writes them and us by extension that we might know that we have eternal life. And so we've now come to the final section. We've now come to the final kind of epilogue of 1 John. He's concluding his sermon. And so we really are beginning to transition. Verses 6 through 8, we see the witnesses concerning who Jesus is. Verses 9 through 12, what it means in general to receive that witness. And then verse 13 is that transition. What does it mean for the Ephesians? What does it mean for you and I? What does it mean practically that we have the witness concerning who Jesus is. And the problem in these verses, I think, is clear. It's when our assurance in Christ and our confidence in God is threatened. And our, they go hand in hand. If you believed on Christ, you can have confidence before the throne of God. If you do not have Christ, you do not have any confidence whatsoever. And so again, assurances are threatened in many ways, but in this case, it has to do with Christology a wrong view concerning Christ. If you have a wrong view concerning Christ, he is your assurance. And if you do not have that, then what assurance do you have? And then confidence is threatened. If we deny the advocate, if we deny Jesus Christ, then how can we have confidence that God hears us? How can we have confidence in prayer if we don't have the great high priest and have not looked to him by faith? And so in verses 13 and 5 through 15, we see John's main purpose for writing, that God's people may know that they have eternal life and that they may know they have confidence before this God. He writes to them, that's the main idea, that is the thrust, that God's people know they have eternal life and then, based upon that, can have confidence in prayer. And so we'll look at this purpose under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see that you may know. God writes, or John writes, that you may know in verse 13, and John writes that you may ask in verses 14 and 15. So we want you to know what's the purpose for his writing, that God's people know 
but he also wants his people to have confidence when they ask. So that you may know, verse 13, and that you may ask, verses 14 and 15. So let's first look at that you may know in verse 13. And notice we see those who may know, those who may have assurance are believers in Christ Jesus. Now again, the context is with respect to these witnesses and what that means in general, a witness to the person and work of Christ. We have the witness of Christ himself. We have the witness of the Father. We have the witness of the Holy Spirit. And we have the witness of the internal working of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of God's people. So we have many witnesses that testify to who Jesus is. And last time we even saw that God's people are a testimony as well, that we have that witness in our hearts. We've believed on he who is the truth. We've believed on that thing that is true. And so we ourselves then are a witness of God's goodness. And so he then transitions further to deal with what this means for the Ephesians. He talked about life. Life is in the Son. Life is in Christ. Therefore, little children, verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing. He's writing for believers. And we've seen several reasons for why he is writing throughout the book. We saw in chapter 1, I'm writing that your joy may be full, that you might have joy and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I write to you, little children, that you may not sin. And if you sin, there's an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We also see in chapter 2, I write to you, who are little children, I write to you, fathers, I write to you, young men, because your sins are forgiven, because you've known him who is from the beginning, and because you've overcome the wicked one. Joy, that we might not sin, who we are in Christ Jesus, but it all is summarized in verse 13. This is the main idea. These things I have written to you. And notice, as John is writing, John writes it, but it's the Holy Spirit who guides him into the truth. John writes it, but is the Holy Spirit who directs him to the things that the people of God need to hear and would be then inscripturated so that there is a benefit for us as well. These things I have written to you. And notice, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. There's a similar sort of purpose statement in the Gospel of John. Again, I love it when there's a purpose statement. Mark is more, uh, more is, uh, Mark is more, he wants to draw you in. It's more subtle, where John just tells you like it is. He just says it, John 20, verses 31 and, or 30 and 31, where he says, I write to you that you may believe in the Son of God. So the Gospel of John, it is encouraging for believers, but it is evangelistic. The Gospel of John is writing that you might believe. The book of 1 John is written for believers. The book of 1 John is written for those who have believed in the name of the Son of God. I write to you, those who have believed. I write to you, Christians. Faith is a gift that God gives, but we are the ones who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in who he is. We saw that in 5.1 and 5.5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. And then in verse 5, whoever believes that Jesus is the Son of God of God. It's faith in Jesus, faith in who he is, faith in the fact that he is fully God and fully man, faith in the fact that he is the savior of his people. And so John writes, he gives his purpose in the gospel of John, and he gives us his purpose 
in the book of 1 John as well. I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God and all that that entails, who this one is, this specific one, the name of Jesus Christ. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. And we have believed upon him. So the who may know, who may have assurance, it's those who have faith in Christ. And then notice what we may know. Notice what is known. And there are two things uh, that I think are especially in the New King James. Again, there's no mission in the ESV and others. I do think it should be included here. And there are two things that we see. There are two things that we can uh, be assured of as he writes for us. What we know. The first thing is possession of eternal life. And secondly, that we might continue to have faith. And so we see the first purpose or the purpose statement. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Remember, we've seen life throughout this book. We've seen Jesus who is the word of life. He has life in himself and he thus then is the one who communicates eternal life. And it's in him that we have life. Our life is derived. Our life is, our life is a gift. In Christ, there, Christ Jesus in himself, uh, in his divine nature, he has life in himself. Uh, and so we have life in him. We have life in the Son. We have life that comes from being found in him. And notice that you might know, present tense, you have eternal life now. We don't always feel like that because we're getting sick. We don't always feel like that because we're feeling the decay as our outer man decays day by day. As we move and march toward the idea of death and march toward that reality, we don't always feel like we have eternal life. That's why we need that reminder. That's why we need that encouragement. We don't see it, but we believe it. We don't see it, but it is a present possession that we have now. We have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit. We have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. We have eternal life now, and it's life in the Son. That's where life is, brethren. What is life when you consider all of Scripture? Life is communing with God. That's what life is. That's what eternal life is. What then is death? Being away from God. Isn't exactly what happens in the garden when Adam sins? We talked yesterday about what sin brought in our theology study, and it brought separation from God. That's what death is. It's separation from the favor of God. It's separation from the goodness of God. So what then is life? Life is then communing with God, and we have it now in part, and we shall have it in full when Christ comes again. Gill says that there is such a thing as eternal life, that this is in Christ, that believers have it in him and the beginning of it in themselves, and that they may have a right unto it and meetness for it and shall certainly enjoy it. The knowledge of which is had by faith under the testimony of the spirit of God and particularly what is above written concerning eternal life, being a uh, free grace gift of God and this being in Christ and the assurance of it that such who have him or believe in him have that which might serve to communicate, cultivate, and increase such knowledge. What are we doing? What is our Christian life? It is to commune with God and grow more in the knowledge of eternal life and grow more in the practice of what that looks like. That is our Christian life. We have it now. You have Christ. You've believed upon Christ. You have 
eternal life now. It is our present possession. And then notice how we continue on in this life, the, set, the last part of verse 13, that you may continue to believe, that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. The Christian life is always a life of faith, isn't it? You're not in by faith and remain in by works. Even in our sanctification, we trust that God is sanctifying to us. There are commands in scripture, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but it's God who works in you both to will and to do. And as is said in Philippians chapter one, that God who begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. And so brethren, what, do you, what must you do? Believe that God will do that. Believe that God is sanctifying you. Believe that God will help you in your Christian life. Yes, God commands us to not do something or to do something, and we must do it, but we do it by the power of the Spirit. We do it with the knowledge of Christ. We do it with the knowledge that, as God has said, he will provide and give us what we need. In uh, chapter 14, paragraph 2 of the London Baptist Confession, it's the section on faith, they talk about the principal acts of saving faith accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ, but they go on to say for justification. We're not, that's fine, that's good for us. We believe that, yes, we enter in by faith. We believe by faith. But then they also say sanctification. For justification and sanctification. Don't forget that sanctification is the work of God in you. Justification is the work of God for you, but sanctification is the work of God in you, and he is sanctifying you. And we must trust that he will sanctify us and make us more Christ-like day by day. I'm not saying we're not going to struggle. I'm not saying we're not going to have battles, but that's why sanctification, hopefully there is this trajectory in our life. It might be like this, it might be like this, but hopefully there is this going on in our Christian walk. And as we do this, we're probably going to realize just how sinful we are, how vile we are, but how glorious God is. And God is pleased to help us. God will give us the strength that we need. Notice it's not by faith, remain in by works, but it's a continued life of faith. The Christian life is one of faith as we hear his commands, believe his commands, and trust he will help us and enable us to do what is pleasing in his sight. Henry says, believers must persevere or they do nothing. To withdraw from believing on the name of the Son of God is to renounce eternal life and draw back unto perdition. Therefore, the evidences of religion and the advantage of faith are to be presented to believers in order to hearten and encourage them to persevere to the end. We need to be encouraged to persevere to the end. That's why John is writing to be encouraged to be faithful to the end in Christ Jesus, to press on knowing that our life is in Christ and we lay hold of him. Our whole life is looking at Christ by faith and one day we shall see him by sight. And so what is the application then, dear brethren? Sometimes application does not have to be, here's five ways on how to live your life. Sometimes application is knowledge. And in fact, knowledge is an action, isn't it? Because we think. And that's exactly what he's saying. I write to you that you might know. I write to you that you might know and believe and trust in what God has said. That you might lay hold of what he has said, that you have eternal life. Remember the heretics were claiming to have eternal life by way of experience. 
And so what is John saying to his hearers? Here is eternal life. It is in Christ. You may not have this experience and will likely probably not have that experience because that is not where eternal life lies. It lies in Christ. I might not always feel God. I might not always feel like he's near, but I trust in what he says. I trust in his word. We trust in the knowledge that we have concerning eternal life. See how we have this life. Now we contemplate, we rest upon that truth that God has given to us. Meditation is thinking through the divine words, thinking through and doing divine reasoning, but hopefully we come to this contemplation where we rest in that promise. God has said you have eternal life. That is the assurance. That is the application. If you believed on Christ, know that you have eternal life. That's why he writes that you may know, and that's the application, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, based upon that assurance, we then should have confidence. Here's what we can do as the people of God. Here's a task we can engage in. And notice in verses 14, 15, he writes that you may ask. And I'm preaching that you may ask. And notice we see how we can ask. And notice we can ask because we have confidence in the promises of God. Notice the people of God can have confidence in God. Verse 14. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What does it mean to live a life of faith? Notice how he transitions to deal with prayer. How do we continually have faith? Well, it manifests in our prayer life. Because when we pray, we know we can go to a God who has promised certain things. Brother, that's what prayer is, isn't it? Praying God's promises back to him. Lord, here's what you said. Here's where I need help. Lord, here's what I am in Christ, and I'm struggling with this right now. Would you help me in that very thing? Notice the life of faith is continually coming back to the word of God and relying upon his promises. When we struggle, that's why it's good to read our Bible every day. That's why it's good to come to church every week, because throughout the week, we have moments where we struggle with doubts. We have struggled with struggles with certain things. And so then we come and we're reminded, oh, yes, Christ is the one I can turn my eyes upon. You see, the one who has great faith is not necessarily one who feels like they have the greatest faith, but it's the one who goes to God when they don't feel like it. That is faith. I bet you those who have the greatest faith are the ones who would never say they have the greatest faith. But it's because they struggle and lack that assurance that they go to the word all the time because they need to be reminded of the promises of God. And certainly the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, resting, receiving upon, or accepting, receiving, resting upon Christ. But even in that same paragraph, it's taking God and all that he says at his word. And so we can have this confidence. We can have this confidence because of Christ. We've seen this word confidence already three times in the book of 1 John. Here are these Christians struggling. Here are these Christians who are lacking assurance. Here's these Christians who feel this threat. Four times he talks about confidence. Four times he talks about the boldness that God's people can have before God. And notice we have boldness before the throne of God in two ways. One is on that final day. When Christ comes back, we do not need to fear the judgment seat of God. We don't need to fear that great white throne of judgment. We see that in 2.28 and 4.17. In 2.28, 
little children abide in Christ, that when Christ comes at his second coming and final coming, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If we're in Christ Jesus, we don't have to fear that final day. And the same thing is said in 4.17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Just as Christ is and Christ has suffered and now Christ is glorified, so are we already and so shall we be when he comes again. So we have confidence before God. We can be confident on that final day. We don't need to fear that God is going to play a movie of all the bad things that we've done because we have confidence in Christ Jesus on that day. But just as we have confidence on that day, we can have confidence now in prayer. And so we saw that in 321, where he says, Beloved, if our hearts can, uh, does not condemn us, we have confidence toward, toward God. We see in verse 20, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. The point is, if we speak to ourselves, if we have those doubts, if our hearts, if we're talking to ourselves and we condemn ourselves, God is greater. God is greater than our doubts. That is what he is saying there. And if God is greater than our doubts, we can have confidence before him that we ask. We have confidence toward God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. So we can have confidence then and we should have confidence now in prayer. Brethren, we have to have biblical theological self-talk, don't we, when we're doubting. We have to come back to God's word when we're doubting. God's not going to hear me because I did this sin this week. God's not going to hear me because I wasn't as prayerful. Go to chapter 1, verse 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And so where do you need to go when you sin? God. Where do you need to go when he gives you good things? God. We can have confidence before him and confidence that he will hear us when we pray. What has God said versus what is my mind thinking? We always have to play that game. What is my mind thinking and what has God said? And we always have to go back to what has God said? Jesus says something similar in Matthew chapter 7. On the Sermon on the Mount, he's just talked about, you know, he's finished, he's coming to the end of it, and he talks about righteousness and pursuing righteousness. And he says, ask and it will be given to you, verse 7. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. This time about prayer. That's what he's talking about here. Prayer. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If then you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask him. Therefore, whatever you want men to do, do uh, to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We have confidence before God. And notice the clarification. We see it in Matthew, we see it in John, we see it in other places as well, especially in John. If you ask according to his will. If you ask according to his will. What then is his will? Let's go back to chapter 5 of 1 John. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask, and notice the assumption there, he's assuming we're asking. <laughs> he just assumes we're praying. When Jesus teaches about how to pray, he just says, when you pray. 
Again, there's an assumption that the people of God are praying. It's something that the people of God should be doing in this life. And thankfully, sometimes, you know, if we struggle to pray, the main thing is praying God's word back to him. Or even just going to the scriptural prayers that we see, the Lord's Prayer, that's a good template for praying. But everything about prayer is taking what is said here and praying it back to God. Taking what's said in God's word and letting him know, I mean, he already knows it, but it's coming to him and saying, Lord, you have said, now will you help based upon who you are and what you say. This is what praying in the spirit means. It is not praying that I'm going to have a mystical experience. I'm going to hear a word from God, but it means praying God's thoughts back to him. Jude 20 says, but you beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying according to the word of God and praying it back to him. Brethren, God speaks to us in his word and we speak to God by way of prayer. That's why prayer is a spiritual discipline, isn't it? It doesn't have to be long and drawn out. Notice there's no you know, Bible command that says you must pray for hours and hours upon end. Sometimes prayers can be short. Sometimes prayers that go on too long, or have, you've ceased praying after the first 10 minutes. The other 20 is not praying at all. Some people say you need to pray until you pray. And then when you're done praying, be done praying. Now, it's good to set apart time specifically to pray to God. Notice I'm not saying if you have to get up at 5 a.m. and do your prayers then. If you need to pray at 5, if you need to pray at 5.30 at night, that's fine. There's no command on when you have to pray. But the point is, pray. And there's nothing wrong with little prayers throughout the day. Lord, I'm struggling with anger at this person. Please help me. Lord, I'm struggling with patience, with you know, help. There's nothing wrong with those prayers throughout the day. But they need to be according to his will. We can't just let go and let God. We can't just sit there when we pray and just wait for something. We have to be very careful with that. We pray according to God's word and God speaks his word back to us. And so notice verse 15. Oh, sorry, verse 14. If we ask anything according to his will, then he hears us. This is what we pray for in the third petition of the Lord's Prayer. Lord, thy will be done. And as we've talked about before, thy will be done is referring to God's revealed will. Not the outflowing of God's secret will in providence, but it's God's revealed will. So what does it mean to refer to God's will? What does God desire? What does God want from his people? What does God wish for his people? What does God command his people? Well, it is what is good for them. And is what is good according to what we see, especially in 1 John with the idea of the commandments. What are the commandments of God? This is his will for our life. We see in Romans chapter 12 what the will of God is. It's not the outflowing, the providential will, although God will bring that to pass. We cannot pray against that, but God will bring it to pass. Certainly God brings it to pass by way of prayer, but whether God gives you a lot of money or not, or whether God answers your providential prayers or not, we can always know God's will for our life. And we see this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you may present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. 
You need to know what God's will is before we can do God's will, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And this is when he goes on to talk about what is becoming of a Christian, what a Christian should look like. This is your will. You might not know what the future holds, but you know or should know what God's will for your life is. And that's what we pray when we pray that third petition, that the Lord's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As the angels have zeal for the will of God, we hope and pray that God's people would also have a zeal for his will, a zeal for holiness, a zeal for the things of God, that we would recognize what his will is. Paul also says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, and not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. It is what God has said, what God has commanded, that is God's will for our life. Stott says, prayer is not a convenient device imposing our will upon God. Sometimes we pray that way, don't we? We treat him like a holy horseshoe or a rabbit's foot. God, we're going to twist your arm so I can get what I want. Or for bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. Lord, we want to pray according to your will. How can I honor you? How can I honor you in the life you have given? It is by prayer that we seek God's will and embrace it and align ourselves with it. We pray according to your will. We pray in accordance with what is revealed. And certainly we see, like, see that in 3, 21 and 22 and 23. What is the commandment? We believe on the name of his son and love one another as he gave us commandment. Even in Matthew, he finishes the section with the golden rule. What is the will of God? That you would do unto others as you would have others do unto you. So what is the will of God? What is the prayer we pray? Do you want to be more Christ-like? Want to be less angry? Want to be more encouraging? Want to endure suffering with more patience? Want to be more joyful? Want to have more self-control? Those are all good things. And that is the thing we ask of God according to his will. Sometimes we pray often uh, with the idea of the, uh, the uh, uh, secret will in mind. God, I really want this. God, I really want that. God, I want that. And those are not wrong things. God, I want to know what my job is going to be. You know, I, you know there's, those are not wrong things to necessarily ask for. But the main thing is, is with respect to our spiritual life. You notice in the, the Lord's Prayer, there are six petitions. Only one is about Aunt Bessie's knee or Grandma Gammy's toe fungus, or whatever there are out there. I mean, I'm not against praying for those things, dear brethren. I'm not against praying for those who struggle physically. I'm not against that. But often, if we're honest with ourselves, that is the bulk of our prayers. But notice the other five petitions, that we would honor God, that his kingdom would come, that we would follow his will, that we would be forgiving, that he would protect us. Those are all spiritual things. Again, please understand, we need to pray for those who are suffering physically. I'm not against that very thing. But we need to pray. Uh, uh, we also need to pray primarily for those things according to his will. Gill says, by which is meant not his secret will. They are not, not necessarily known to be, uh, so far as these are made known, they are not to be prayed against. 
for they never can be made void, but the revealed will of God is here intended, by which it appears that all grace is laid up in Christ and all spiritual blessings are with him, that the covenant of grace is ordered in all things and full of the sure mercies of David and of exceeding great promises, uh, precious promises, all which are treasured up. Therefore, they ask for any grace or supply of grace for any spiritual blessing or mercy laid up in Christ in the covenant or in any of the promises. They ask that for matter which is according to the will of God and which may be assured they shall have sooner or later and to ask in a manner that is agreeable to his will. If we ask according to his will, God hears us. That is an assurance that he gives. We see this in Mark 11 as well. We see this in John 14 and Mark 11, 24. We see that Jesus has cast out uh, and turned the tables in the temple and then he teaches his disciples to pray. He teaches his disciples to have faith and prayer is a testament and prayer is one way we exercise our faith in God coming to him. And one thing that's so blessed and so assuring for the people of God, he hears us. 4.12 says we don't see God. Right? No one can see God at any time. But according to 5, 14 and 15, God hears. We don't see him, but God hears. Do you believe that when you pray? Do you believe that when you call upon him? Do you believe that he hears you? Do you believe that he hears you when you ask according to his will? And notice again, when we consider the idea of eternal life, notice how it starts now. Notice isn't some magical fanfare thing where we see people, you know, levitating and falling over. Notice where eternal life is manifested. Prayer. Because where we commune with God. Gathering with the church, gathering with the saints, it's where we commune with God. It's not this mystical, fancy thing. Because remember, the heretics were wanting a mystical, fancy thing. But John's assuring him, assuring them, here is where eternal life is. Walking and communing with God through faith in Christ Jesus. So if you pray to God, you have eternal life. If you pray to God, you're exercising eternal life. You are communing with God and you're walking with him. You speak to him and he speaks with you. The point is we know God through Jesus Christ. These heretics do not. And so if we're assured of these promises, we have confidence before God, notice we turn again to knowledge, our knowledge that God hears us. If we ask according to his will, he hears us, but we need that knowledge, that assurance. Verse 15, notice how knowledge once again becomes practical. If we know that, do you believe that? Do you know that he hears us? Whatever we ask, with respect to whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked for. He hears us with whatever we ask according to his will. We have this assurance that our petitions are answered. God hears our requests. God hears our petitions. They are as good as answered. Now, the results might be in the future, but they are as good as answered, especially when it comes to his will. And let's think about it. If God tells us to be patient, wouldn't he give us the strength to be patient if we ask for it? When he give us what we need, if we keep, and if we still struggle, we pray to him, we don't feel like it's there, we keep praying. And we, as we increase, if the Lord answers that prayer and we recognize that patience in our life, then we pray that God would maintain that and we continue to grow in that. But isn't that a good thing? And so there is a good ex an example of a prayer to pray that I've often prayed 
uh, especially in the past several years. And that has to do with based upon what he says here. And so this is the example I use from anger. I'm not saying this is specifically me at this point, but I do struggle with anger. Lord, I struggle with anger. Your word says that anger is a sin and it violates the sixth commandment. But you have redeemed me. Help me not to be bitter. Help me not to be angry. But help me to love as you have said a child of God should. I believe you will answer as this is according with your will. Lord, help me to encourage. Lord, help me to speak kindly. Lord, help me not to tear down. Isn't that a prayer we should ask? Lord, uh, brethren, sometimes we have not because we ask not. We don't pray in that way. We don't pray with the, uh, the promise of God in view. Lord, you've said what we should be. Will you not supply us? Will he not provide for us? You can come to God with the you saids. You said, Lord, now answer. This is similar in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. You struggle with anxiety. Everybody seems to struggle with anxiety these days. Not to be funny with that, it's just serious. Be anxious for nothing. I also love the Bible because he assumes we're anxious. I mean, uh, he knows people struggle. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests, same words, same, uh, same word that is found in 1 John 5, let your requests be made known to God. He can handle it, brethren. He can handle our issues. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Notice there's a problem as you pray, you're anxious. What's the promise? He will give you peace. Brethren, trust in that. Trust in the promises of God. Trust with what he says. And what's so interesting is the way the language is used in verse 15 when it says that we know that we have it in 1 John. We have asked. We've asked something, but there's an ongoing effect. It's that perfect tense one again. We have asked in the past, but God has heard them, and those petitions are before him, and he will answer according to his will. But we need to pray his promises back to him. And if he's commanded us to do something, if we are forgiven in Christ, we need then to have confidence in our prayers, confidence in what he said, confidence in his promise. And you can take that and apply it to all sorts of things. Lord, I'm really struggling to raise my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Sometimes I exasperate them. Sometimes I don't know what to do. Lord, you say that the rod and reproof give discipline. Lord, you say I'm not supposed to exasperate Will you help me with that? Will he not provide? Is he not a good God? Why wouldn't he answer that prayer, brethren? Why wouldn't he answer when you ask according to his will? And so, yes, an application is we need to pray. We need to pray privately. We need to pray with families. We need to pray corporately. And we need to pray and ask according to his will. But also the encouragement is, the application is, once again, knowledge, confidence, Here's what God has said. He will hear you. And as you know that he hears you, what then should we do? We should pray. May we know about our God and that what we know about our God spur us to pray and pray his thoughts back to him. Sometimes we have not because we ask not. Sometimes we do not pray because we do not have the confidence and trust that God will hear us. And thankfully, brethren, if you struggle with that, struggle with those con that confidence, you know what you can do? Ask for forgiveness, and Christ will hear you. Ask for forgiveness, and God will hear you, 
because Christ is good, Christ is gracious, Christ is loving, and it's in him that we have eternal life and in him that we have confidence. Now, if there are any here today who do not know Christ, this passage is primarily for believers, but we always like to have that call. Notice believers have eternal life. Notice believers have confidence. What confidence can you possibly have? What confidence can you possibly have that you shall live forever when you are outside of Christ? And the call to you is to believe. Believe on Jesus Christ. Believe that he is the Son of God. Believe that he is the Christ. And you shall be saved. And you shall have eternal life.